Usually I try to be very structured and clear with my points. Uh, and I pray it's clear, but it's not as structured. That uh, You're going to see that it's very biblically based, it's gospel based, but it's more just kind of, uh, it was just something I wrote. It was, it, it was kind of a, a journal entry that I have used to, in turn tonight to make a message. So it's something I wrote out that I kind of want to share with you. So it's God's Word. I think we're going to be left with God's Word but it's not, it's not going to take the same format, maybe, as you would typically see. So if you have your journals, I would encourage you just to write the references that we look at. Write thoughts. Think about what are you thinking as we go through this. Kind of self-evaluate. Where, where as I talk about this stuff, do you see yourself landing? And I would encourage you to, to look back on what you wrote in the coming days. So like I said, I've been thinking um, over the last few months about this topic and the topic particularly of amazement and trying to think of the question or trying to think through the question of where does amazement come from? Why does a person ever feel amazed by anything? And through my study of this topic and just writing things out and looking at Scripture, I've come to see that the answer in part is that someone is amazed by something when they understand that that thing that they are enjoying is both unlikely and surprising. Something will be amazing to you if you believe it's a surprising thing. If it's something that you don't just think, well, of course that's the way it is. It's something that that kind of sneaks up on you. I'm going to share just a couple kind of commonplace examples or examples we see in culture. Think about it in regards to sports. This last year, two of the most notoriously unsuccessful fan bases saw their teams win championships. The Chicago Cubs, they're known as the lovable losers, had not won a World Series since 1908. Which means you could have been 107 years old and the Cubs in your lifetime never won at all. And then you have Cleveland, right? Oh, sad, sad Cleveland, right? The, the Cavs had never won the championship. The Cavs are a basketball team. They had never won the championship. And none of the um, other major teams in the city had a championship since 1964. So when I would listen to Cubs fans talk, I'd say, you know, you don't have a, you don't have a leg to stand on. Because, okay, yeah, the Cubs are not good. But you got you had the Bulls with Jordan. You had the Blackhawks. You had the White Sox winning a couple years ago. Like, your, your city knew championships, even if it wasn't your one particular team. Cleveland hadn't experienced a champion in any form since 1964. And in the same year, the Cubs and the Cavs win it all. And because of that history of the one team, the history of the one town, it was unlikely and surprising that both of those cities would experience their teams holding up the championship trophy at the end of the year. It was unlikely. It was surprising. And yet it happened. And the emotion from those fan bases was amazement. People ask me, so I'm a Cavs fan, and people ask me, what was it like? What was it like when LeBron ran down that block and he just slams it up against the backboard? And I remember thinking, it was a great play, but they're going to blow this. You know, I, I had seen Cleveland teams get up to the precipice of a championship and it just be taken out in the most cruel ways. But when Kyrie hits that three-pointer, I thought, there's a chance here. There's a chance they could win. And then I'm thinking, all right, but yeah, it's the Warriors. Steph Curry's going to shoot a shot. And, I, ah, ah, and I'm down on the ground crying, you know, like I did when I was eight years old. And the Browns lost on the one-yard line. But then the Warriors missed that shot. 
and the Cavs get the rebound. It was like an out-of-body experience. I looked at Anderson, and I'm like, can you believe this? Like, it was like, I cannot believe it. It wasn't joy. I mean, joy was mixed in there. But it was more of like, is this possible? Am I dreaming right now? The Cavs, the Cleveland team? And so there was just this euphoric celebration all over the town. And so both teams had these parades. The one in Cleveland essentially caused the entire city to shut down. I mean, just just wall-to-wall people. They couldn't start the parade for about an hour, and they were just encouraging people to back up, but there was nowhere to back up. Forget three deep or five deep, they were 20 deep. And so they're trying to get these crowds to move, and, and they just they couldn't do it. But you know, eventually they finally did it. And, and LeBron talks about so all the Cavs players were on kind of like you know the top of cars, and they were driving. And then LeBron was last. LeBron, LeBron's a really good basketball player, if you don't know him. And, and the, he was just encircled by people with his family, and they said, "What was what was the emotion?" He said, "Fear." <laughs> you know, they were so excited. It was like, "What are they going to do with me?" You know, and and so they they had this wonderful celebration. And then the Cubs. Uh, parade. They said, estimates said that 5 million people attended the Cubs parade. It's actually one of the highest, like the most um, unified amount of humanity, the top 10 times uh, the most humans had ever met in one place. So we see amazement in other ways as well, right? When our, our family went to Disney World a couple of years ago, I'll never forget Sela, our third child, um, meeting Princess Tiana from the movie Princess and the Frog. Now, don't get me wrong, Sailor loves Princess Aurora and Cinderella and all, you know, kind of all the, the normal, but, like, you ask her who her favorite princess is. It, it's Princess Tiana. And this is this is four-year-old Sailor. So four-year-old children, when they go to Disney World, that's not a person dressed up like Princess Tiana. That's Princess Tiana. Like, that's the real deal. And so she sees her, and her eyes just light up. And Princess Tiana goes over and holds her hand. Me and Kelly are bawling. Which <laughs> was probably, I don't know if we should have or not, but like, we're bawling and she hugs her. And there's just this, this amazement. It was unlikely. It was surprising. She didn't see it coming. We had set it up for her and she didn't know about it. It was the same face Anderson made a couple months ago when he had the opportunity to be in a lightsaber duel with Darth Vader. <laughs> same face, right? Princess Tiana, Darth Vader, same face. I can't believe I'm going to do this right now. Why? Because that doesn't happen every day, right? We're like, we're not at the grocery store and Darth Vader comes around and throws Anderson a lightsaber. Oh, we're doing this now, I figured, right? No. These things don't happen every day. It's not something you assume is going to be a part of your normal life. Maybe you can relate to this one. I remember the feeling in high school on the rare occasion that I would get an A on a math test. So the teacher, before I know my grade, the teacher's walking around the room handing back the tests. My heart's beating faster, nervously pondering what red-inked letter would be circled on the top of my page. On those few times when I saw the first letter of the alphabet, my heart would jump with excitement and amazement. Now, this is no joke. I would always double-check the name first. It was so unlikely. I would get an a math test. I would check the name because my fear was I'd get excited and then realize it says Chuck on the top of the page. He gave, she gave the wrong test out. So I would look at the top of the page. It was mine. I can't believe it. An A on a math test. This is unlikely. This is surprising. It kept everything in me not to want to bolt out of my desk and run home to show my mom that she might join in the celebration and amazement. 
Why was I amazed? Why was I surprised? Because it was unlikely. It was something that didn't happen often, and that amazement resulted in gratitude. So, so why am I sharing this with you? I'm talking about cubs and calves and Darth Vader and Princess Tiana and math. Here's why. I think one of the greatest, greatest dangers, maybe the greatest danger, for a teen who grows up in the church is to feel the opposite of amazement when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ. To not be surprised that Jesus would die on the cross for you. To not see that as unlikely, but see that as something you earned. Something that seems normal. The reality is that we can know the facts of the Gospel and be able to articulate the Gospel and yet not be amazed by, by what is the most amazing truth that there will ever be. That God Himself came to earth to live a perfect life for you and die on the cross for your sins. Instead of being amazed, teen, the temptation is to be indifferent. Temptation is to get yeah, the Gospel. And teen, please hear me. The problem of our indifference is not a problem with the gospel. It's a problem with us. It's not because, you know, it's one of the negatives of growing up in the church is that you've just heard about the gospel too much and it's just become commonplace because of how normal it is. No, no, not, the problem is not with the gospel, it's with us. Because I will spend Eternity in heaven and the gospel's never going to get boring. It's only going to get sweeter. It's only going to get more amazing. One of the primary reasons the gospel is not amazing to us is because we don't realize how sinful we are. We've not gone to the law to show us who we really are apart from of God. The law is a gift to us because it shows us how amazing and how necessary and how unlikely and how surprising the gospel is. When we understand how sinful we are, we will see the gospel as unlikely and surprising and amazing. So let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Romans chapter 7, 7, verse 7 through verse 12. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And now listen to this. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Listen to that. If you, yet if, if it, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Teens, you can't look for the solution until you understand the problem. You can't look for a solution to something 
until you understand the problem. And you won't be grateful for the solution until you realize you have a problem. Teen, you have a problem. As parents, we have a problem. When you go to the doctor's office and the doctor comes in the room, he doesn't just throw medicine at you, right? He doesn't like open the door and sling in some medicine. He doesn't walk in and have a big band-aid and just slap it randomly on your head. What does the doctor do first? What is the first thing a doctor says? Maybe for, you know, hello, greetings. They begin by saying, what's going on? So what's going on today? What's going on? Why are you here, right? Why do they do that? Why do they ask that question? Because they need to know the problem before they give you a solution. They ask about your symptoms. They need to know what's wrong with you before giving you a remedy to make you better. The doctor needs to know what is going on with this person before they can help. And you need to know there's a problem so you even go to the doctors. The symptoms you experience are, in a sense, a gift from God as they alert you to the fact that there's a problem and you need help. They say some of the most dangerous, scary, sad diseases are the ones that can fester in your body for years and you didn't even know it was there. You need to know the symptoms. You need to experience the symptoms before you go, or so that you go. It compels you to go, and the doctor needs to know what those symptoms are to give you a remedy. And in the same way, you need to know there is a spiritual problem if you're going to be compelled to the gospel and ultimately grow in being amazed by the gospel. We, we will perceive, you will perceive the gospel as of little to no value to you unless you see your need for it, right? Why, why would I move towards something unless I needed it or wanted it? If you are a teen here this evening that is indifferent to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the major problem is that you don't see the disease that is ravaging your body and will bring eternal consequences unless you receive the remedy offered by God. And so that's my first question tonight. Do you see the raging problem you have? Do you see that disease ravaging your body? Not just physically, but more important, spiritually. The law is a gift to you. Because God has given it to us to help us see our need for rescue. The law is not something that that God wants to use to rub our, our faces in the dirt. It's not to look how horrible you are. The gospel is a gift that you might see your condition, that you might run to God. I think all Christians in the New Testament era can be quick to dismiss the Old Testament as, well, that's what the Old Testament Israelites needed. And I think sometimes as Christian teens or just teens tempted to, to look at the law as something we don't need anymore. We can be tempted to think, well, yeah, it was really important for those who lived before Christ. Tempted to think the law, yeah, sure, it's from God and it's good, but didn't Jesus fulfill the law? You don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. And yet, every time we think we're a pretty good person, every time we think that we're good in God's eyes because of of what we are or how we're better than other people, we prove our need for the law. You and I need the law. That's not the only thing we need. But we need the law. The law is a gift. 
Not because it's a ladder. This is like this, this is one of these phrases that I've heard and I, I pass on to you teens and I pray you always remember. The law is not a ladder that you can use to climb to God, but a mirror that shows you how sinful you are and how desperately you are in need of rescue. As the years go on, I pray when you think about God's commands, when you think about, about the law, the Ten Commandments, and just the Old Testament, that you would see it not as a ladder. Okay, these are the things I need to do to be right with God. No, it's a mirror to help you to see your condition. Yeah, if you use the law as a ladder, it will be condemning. Because you're not getting two, three rungs up that thing without falling back down. When you see it as a mirror that God gives us that then causes us to run to Christ, then it is a sweet gift. Carl Graustein says the following. Carl Graustein wrote a book called uh, growing up Christian. It's a book I highly recommend every teen who grows up in the church to read. It's a great book. He brings in guys like J.C. Ryle and Spurgeon and Calvin and, and just so, just a great book on here are the temptations of growing up in a church, but here's how we can be the most amazed Christians on the planet to see growing up in the church as a massive gift. He says the following, Our amazement of our Savior depends primarily on our understanding of the huge separation between us and God and the great work He accomplished on the cross to bridge this great divide. A key to passionately loving God is in knowing that we have been forgiven of many sins. Our amazement of our Savior depends primarily on our understanding of our huge separation. So there's two parts to that. If you are not amazed by the gospel, if you're not amazed by Christ, is part of it, you don't understand how big a gap it is between you and God. And then secondly, and the great work He accomplished to cross the bridge in that great divide. I love how he talks about both. Do you see the distance between you and God and your sinfulness and His holiness? And do you see Christ bridging the gap? You must understand, I must understand how sinful we really are. Not so we feel bad about ourselves, but so that we run to God for help. And God's law helps us see that. I love in Romans 7 how it shows us that the law helps us to see sin. In Romans 7, Paul's talking about the law, and in the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about the limitations of the law. How the law cannot save us. And that when you become a Christian, because of the perfect life and death of Jesus, we are free from our enslavement of the law. And so in verse 7 of chapter 7, Paul anticipates the reader is going to ask, well, if that's true, is the law good or evil? If it can't save us, if we were enslaved to it, is it good or bad? And we see his answer, by no means. What shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if, it, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. No, the, sin, the law is not evil. The law is not sin. It's a gift to us. Because it shows us the symptom. It's not the remedy. Teens, the law is not the remedy, right? The gospel is the remedy. But the law reveals the disease. The, the law reveals the symptoms of being fallen in Adam and rebelling against God. 
Our sin lies to us. I told my kids the other day, if I could make money justifying sin, I'd be a millionaire. If you could make money justifying your sin, you'd be a millionaire. Aren't we amazing at it? Think about some of the things you've said to your parents over the years. Maybe some of the things you've said to yourself over the years. Justifying sin. Well, there is a reason I did that. Yeah, 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 I did it, but... And we come up some impressive little spins on truth, right? Or we minimize it. Well, yeah, but my brother did, or my sister did, or my friend did. It's like, okay, I got caught. What do I do? I try to make my sin look less and other people's sin look greater so I can get my parents off my, the nose off my case and on to others. We, we can justify sin. We can minimize sin. We can blame shift. And when we do that, we subtly say we don't really need the gospel. We subtly say, yeah, other people need it, or I kind of need it, but, but not this complete desperation that I have no hope apart from the life and death. Sin is a disease in that it's constantly lying to us and telling us that that the symptoms aren't that bad or there aren't any symptoms. You don't have to go to the doctor. You don't have to get a remedy. You're fine. You're good. I think it would be, I'll say it this way, I think our problem is that we look down and not up. And so what I mean by that is, if you kind of look at it like this, if, if there's kind of like a morality meter, you know, whatever your morality meter is, maybe it's like up to here. And you've got some good things going for you, right? Like, I, you know, I go to church, I, I've got Christian parents, you know what, I think, I think my morality meter is about here. Instead of looking up and seeing the perfection of Christ, the, the holiness of God, that the standard is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Loving your neighbors yourself. Just this holiness is perfection. Instead of looking up and saying, I am nowhere near good enough. We look down, don't we? We try to find somebody who we think is less moral than us. And we look at this, we look at little, little Chuck. Let's go back to Chuck, right? You got an A in that math test the one time, right? Chuck's morality is down here. And I think, I don't look up, I look down and say, I'm better than him. Look, I'm here and he's, he's down here. You should listen to the way he talks to people. You should listen to the way he talks to his parents. You should listen to the music he listens to or the way he deceives or whatever it is. He, you, you look down and say, I'm good. Now tell me, is there any difference between the person's here and the person's here when that's the standard? Now you both failed, right? If you get a 44% on the math test or a 22% in the math test, are you really going to the guy who had a 22 like, ha ha, I got a 44. No, you're like, you failed and so did I. Don't look down. Look up. Don't, don't look at other people perceived moralism. The reality is if you don't do it perfectly, it's not actually righteous. So even like that is a bit of a, a misnomer because if you didn't do it perfectly, it's actually not true. It's not real. It's not, you, you didn't accrue anything. That's why Paul can say filthy rags. I mean, if you were Jewish and you saw Paul, you would have thought, that guy, if anybody's getting in, it's that guy. He said filthy rags because his, his motives were just all all messed up. None of that earned him anything. We, we must look at the law of Christ. Not to be condemned, but to see things for what they are. 
So I put on kind of every other seat the, the little how good are you thing. We need to, if you have it, we need to help make sure other people can see it next to you. And what is, doesn't only have page numbers, but page four. Turn the page once. And I, I love this little booklet. So it's something a, a friend of ours created many years ago. It just says there on the first page, I'll read it to you, you don't have to turn back there, but it says, how would you rate your goodness on a scale from 1 to 10? People almost always, so it said that usually people give themselves a 6 or a 7. That's true. If you've ever gone out, if you've ever kind of walked a friend through this or a neighbor through this or just a stranger through this, if, if you would rate your goodness 1 to 10, what would you say? People usually say 6 or 7. Some people sometimes you know, feel a little big in their britches that day, don't say 8 or 9, or maybe else someone... Who actually the Lord maybe is working on, you know, see a three or a four, but usually people, uh, you know, you know, and what says, and people usually say this, well, I'm not as good as some people, I'm no Mother Teresa, but at least I've never murdered anyone. God knows I'm a pretty good person, and because of this, He will accept me into heaven. That is the vast majority of our culture. And so, what does our friend do in creating this? He gives us the law. The reason we think, so this is the third page there, the other, to the left of the Ten Commandments, what's the standard? The reason we think we're good enough to get to God is because we compare ourselves to other people. But when we compare ourselves to God and His standard, which is the standard, the Ten Commandments, we all fall short. Here's a quick test to more accurately rate your goodness. I'm just going to read through this tonight, and I want you to think about which ones have you disobeyed. And remember, it's not a sliding scale. It's not like, well, I only broke that one six times, right? You, you couldn't use that logic in a bank or in, in a bank case. Well, I only robbed the bank four times. The other guy robbed it eight times. I should get off scot-free. No, you robbed the bank four times. You're a bank robber. So it says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Is loving God your first priority? Always. Perfectly. How many times in a given day do you love other things more than God? How many times is God not your first priority? Every time Ben Ross does that, he breaks the first commandment. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Are you devoted to anything more than God? Do you live for people's approval or the desire for money or or video games. i got to play video games today or i got to be with my friends today or whatever it is where you're just devoted to loving that thing and living for that thing and serving that thing or that person more than God. Every time we do that, we break God's law. Shall not take God's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Every time we yell back at our parents, verbally and not verbally, every time in your heart, you know, your parent might say to do something, and you don't say anything because you know if you say something, there's going to be consequences. So you just stew in your heart. God knows your heart. So every time there's kind of a grumble, 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 God saw that. God heard that inward grumble. Every time we don't perfectly honor our mother or father, we sin against God. You shall not murder. And, you know, again, we're like, all right, got one, right? Never murdered anybody. And then Jesus lovingly says, hey, it's not just action. It's heart. 
Matthew 5, anger towards another is murder. Have you been angry with someone? A sibling? A friend? A, 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 maybe someone who kind of puts himself towards you as an enemy? Your parents? Every time anger in your heart, you have broken God's commandments. Shall not commit adultery. Again, not just outward, but inward. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. I was talking to a friend this week, and he was just saying, like, his wife got this huge raise at work. He's making more money than he's ever made. He's like, Ben, I I just can't tell you how much money I'm making right now. It's really great. We're doing this and doing that. And I'm thinking, God, can we change places? And I'm thinking, I would really like to have, I like to say that to you guys tonight. Man, guys, I got so much money, I don't even know what to do with it. Right? And so in that moment, I'm thinking, okay, God, you're calling me to rejoice with those who rejoice. He's rejoicing. God, you've given him this. Money's not evil. God, it seems like you've given him this provision. And and so I want to rejoice with him. But the temptation is, as I'm driving away, because he's talking to me in in that meeting, you know, I'm not really in the Word a ton, and I'm not really in community, and I'm thinking to myself, I love your Word, God. I love being in community. Why does he get the money and not me, right? I'm coveting what he has. I want his life. I've broken God's commandments. So as you look at that teen, as you look at that parent, can you say you're a six or a seven? I've broken every single one of those. I'm a zero. That's what I am. And I want to lovingly put before you that you're a zero as well. You and I are a zero. But here's the beautiful news. Christ came for zeros. Christ came because of zeros. Christ came because that's who we are and that's what we've done. And so there's this woman in Luke 7. We're going to turn to Luke 18 in just a moment. But Luke 7, there's this woman and she is weeping at Jesus' feet. Why? Because she doesn't just understand the bad news. She understands the good news. She understands that God saves zeros. She understands that God saves people who are great sinners. So when she sees her sin, she doesn't run away from God. She runs towards God. She runs towards Jesus because that's what He came to do. He came to seek and save the what? The lost. You're lost. And Jesus came for you and for me. Look at Luke 18. Flip over to Luke 18 with me. And so I'm going to read this. We're, we're, we're coming to the close here, but I'm going to read this. And I want you to think about two things. One, if you're honest, which one do you feel like you're tonight? It's, 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 Two, it's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want you to ask yourself, which one am I? Honestly, truly, which one do I consider myself? Who am I? And then I want you to listen to what Jesus says about which one is forgiven. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So everything we just said, one of the things that was very eye-opening to me was that I used to know Pharisees bad. Don't want to be a Pharisee. Pharisees, whenever Jesus were talking to them, probably did something wrong. And then I realized years later, I was a church kid who was a total Pharisee. 
Because I thought, look at, look at, look at my moralism. Look how, look at all my good deeds. And Jesus is saying this parable is for some who trusted in themselves. So if you're here tonight and you would admit, I believe God loves me because of me. I believe God loves me because of what I do and how I'm better than others. This parable's for you. Trusted in themselves and not Jesus. It says, the parable, uh, so this parable to some, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So, you know, tax collectors in this culture were looked down upon, mocked, worst of the worst. Pharisees saw, saw as the best of the best. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he comes in and just says, God, I thank you that I am so much better than everybody else. He's not actually thanking God. It's kind of like a backwards, kind of a humble brat. He's saying thank you, but he's really looking around. You know, and he, he specifically in the parable points out the tax collector. Man, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not like you. I'm glad I'm not like you. I'm glad I'm not like you. And I'm definitely glad I'm not like this tax collector over here, because I do it all. Verse thirteen. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The the Pharisee did not leave forgiven. He did not leave forgiven. His sins remained on him. But the tax collector, who said simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, left justified. Do you believe you're a sinner tonight? Do you believe that you need a Savior? Do you believe that it doesn't matter who's to your left and right, that there is a great divide between you and God? And not to stop there, Are you there at all? Is there a sense of seeing, I'm a sinner. God, be merciful. I need your grace. I need your help. And to see your sin and to run to God and to say, God, I can't save myself. I am a sinner. I am a mess. I need your grace and forgiveness. And to know that God will give it. Jesus lived every day of his life perfect that it might be credited to your account. I've, I've found over the years that it seems like we understand the death, we don't seem to understand the life. Teens, the life of Jesus is really important. It wasn't like that was just Him biding His time until the cross. Jesus, every day, perfectly fulfilled the law so that all who would repent and trust in Him would be given that righteousness, that perfection in their account. God, when He sees us, sees perfection. I said to a friend this week, when God sees you, He sees a perfect parent. Because He sees Christ. And Jesus died on the cross to take your wrath. 
to take your punishment. You would have been in hell forever. And Jesus took it on the cross. So I think we're going to end there tonight. Do you see your sin? Do you see your need for a Savior? And do you see that Jesus stands ready to be your Savior? Have you gone to Him? Have you repented? Have you trusted in Him? If you haven't, we, we, we plead that you would. That there's no other way. There's no other hope. I was talking to a new newer Christian this week, and he said he just was on this path of following the world, seeking the things of the world, and it never, ever satisfied. And God, in His grace, saved him, and He said, where would that, have, would that road have headed if he would have kept walking? Just this amazement of grace that God would save him, that God would rescue him. And if you are a Christian, which I know many of you are, We only get more and more amazed as time goes on because we get to spend more time with God and in His Word. And even as Christians, we're still sinners, aren't we? We're forgiven, but we still sin. And to be able to go back to God again and again and to receive fresh grace and fresh mercy, freshly reminded of all God has done for us. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would, as Josh prayed, that we would see the bad news. But I pray for, for all of us that we would understand the depth of sin, that we would see the gift of the law and the way it's a mirror to show us who we are apart from You. We wouldn't know that we're sinners apart from Your law. But not to stop there, Lord. Not, to, not to just to see our sinfulness, but to go to the cross and see Your grace and mercy and love. To see every sin forgiven, to see us lavished with grace, to see us adopted as Your children, given eternal life. Oh Lord, we thank You for this. And we pray as we move towards our, our, um, our time just talking with parents and teens that You would continue to help us to apply this and be, just be encouraged in the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.